Greetings, my good people. How are you? What is happening? What is going on? How's everybody doing? What is the latest and greatest? Hope everybody's doing well and that your Monday and week is off to a tremendous start. The final Monday of January already, as February is right on the horizon. Here to deliver everything that's going on in the world of sports is none other than yours truly, Jay Reels, the host of the Jay Reels Podcast. For my first timers, welcome aboard. And for those who've been banging with me for now 111 episodes, I welcome you guys back. Again, it's a Monday, January 27th, in the year of our Lord, 2020. The J Reels What's the Deal segment. That's right. What is on tap for this episode? We'll go down under to take a look at what's happening with the Australian Open. Coco Goff, who's the 15-year-old sensation after beating Venus Williams last week, as well as Naomi Osaka, the defending champion, and everything that she's accomplished. Well, she goes by the wayside, unfortunately, so we will not see her moving forward as we enter the second and final week of the tournament. So we'll recap that. We'll also talk about what's happening in Major League Baseball with the Hall of Fame votes with Derek Jeter and him not getting the 100% that everybody was just spewing and ranting and raving about. All right, calm down, everybody. We'll uh, get some of those Yankee fans off the ledge there as we'll talk about that as well as the new manager, Luis Rojas. We'll also get into everything that's happening in the NHL, All-Star Weekend in the books, and now we could look forward to a second half of this NHL season. Also, there's a big game coming this Sunday, the Super Bowl, that's right. I'll preview what lies ahead for Super Bowl 54 down in Miami between the Kansas City Chiefs and the San Francisco 49ers as you'll get my take on the big game, X-Factors, matchups, etc., final score, predictions, the whole nine as we're just days away from another Super Bowl and crowning another champion in the NFL. Sometimes when we look at life and certain events that may take place, I like to call them as the where were you moments. And in sports, a lot of people may remember they were alive to witness the night of Buster Douglas beating Mike Tyson, or even earlier than that, when the USA hockey team defeated the Russians in the semifinal game. And of course, who could forget here locally, when the New York Giants stunned the 18-0 Pats in the final seconds of Super Bowl 42. Those are the moments that made you think right off the top of your head, where were you when those events unfolded? But sadly, there are also moments that we would love to forget, and that involve tragedy whether that was the day Elvis died, or Michael Jackson, Prince, Anthony Bourdain, I remember all those days vividly, even the day Elvis died. But even on a grander scale, 9-11, I remember where I was at. I was literally two blocks from the World Trade Center at around 10 to 9, that September 11th, that sunny day. But that's a story for another day. Shortly after 3 o'clock, I'm sitting in a restaurant in Tarrytown, New York, my girlfriend and it was a TV on and it just so happened that they were playing the Pro Bowl so my girlfriend says to me what they're playing football what's going on here I said, ah, it's the Pro Bowl who cares I never watched it to save my life as if you've heard this podcast before but then a few minutes after looking up on the screen and talking about this Pro Bowl and even delving a little bit into the Super Bowl she has a look on her face as she's facing the TV I'm not I have my back to it So she grabs my hand and opens her eyes almost in shock or I don't even want to say horror. But as I turn around, I see the special report that Kobe Bryant died in a helicopter crash. And you see the aftermath, just the smoke and whatever debris that was on the ground due to this crash. I'm sure just like everybody else that when the news first broke, whether they saw it on their phones or on Twitter or actually somehow, some way we're watching this. It's not only incomprehensible, you just can't wrap your head around something like that. When you see that, 
and read on the screen, you almost have to shake your head and say, no, no, this must be a nightmare. It's incredulous. I, I can't believe what I'm reading. And to watch those events and just to sit there and somehow, someway process this, it's almost impossible to do so because just as we were sitting down, I don't even know if we ordered yet, but it's one of those things that your mind goes off into the distance. And right, we could sit here and say how precious life is and we're here today, gone tomorrow, and that is so ever true. When you saw what happened there yesterday in Calabasas, California, which is about 30 miles north and west of Los Angeles, you just sit there and you're pretty much numb. I'll be honest, the rest of yesterday, that's how I felt. It was very quiet, very somber. You start putting your own life in perspective. And then as the news continues to roll out that his daughter Gianna was on that helicopter, as well as seven other people, not only including the pilot, but also a renowned baseball coach, John Altabelli, who was actually a coach of Mets All-Star Jeff McNeil. And when the news started to slowly but surely trickle out, first you heard five people, then it was nine. And I get that a lot of these people, the TMZs of the world, they want to cash in on this. They want to be the clickbait content leaders. They want to, and I just want to pick on TMZ because I'm sure there are other outlets as well, but just the thirst to try to get that story and to report that nobody else on that helicopter was part of the Kobe Bryant family. And then when you find out his daughter, Gianna, 13 years old, who was a basketball player, in fact, that they were going to the Mamba Academy, I don't know if it was for a game or practice, whatever it may be, but all you could do is just shake your head. You have no words. And the best way to put it is that you're completely numb. The only other thing I compare to in recent memory was when Jose Fernandez died, the former pitcher of the Miami Marlins. And granted, Jose Fernandez isn't anywhere near the stratosphere of Kobe Bryant. But it was an athlete that was on the rise that certainly had all the talent in the world and his whole life in front of him, which is the only difference between he and Kobe Bryant and this not only just from state of stature, but also he was still alive, still young, and still had his whole future and life ahead of him. Where Kobe, as far as his basketball life, the next step was the Hall of Fame, which I'll get to in a minute. But now he was onto the second stage of his life where he had won Academy Award, where he was producing content, children's books, etc. And I'll never forget that morning with Jose Fernandez because watching him and admiring him from afar, of course you think about how precious life is, etc. But it just made you numb. You couldn't wrap your head around this person who you've watched time and time again, and then they're no longer here. But going back to Kobe Bryant, not only was it just tragic, beyond sad, but the whole NBA community obviously were mega affected by it to the point where there were a lot of people online wondering whether they should cancel games or not. And how I looked at that was, I felt that if Kobe Bryant was here, he would say, no, play the games. I could see if he was still a current player, 
The Lakers didn't play yesterday. They were actually flying back from Philadelphia. So could you imagine that en route home, cross country, that you have to hear the news while you're in the air. And when you land, and I'm sure you've probably seen some of the footage with LeBron James, I guess to the right of the tarmac, getting off the plane. Obviously just, what could you say? Heartbroken. Can't believe that something like this could ever happen. But they did the right thing, the NBA, and played yesterday. And we get that a lot of the players in the league looked up to Kobe and was a guy that I'm sure a lot of these young guys, and it's two generations when you think about it, not only just this generation now that's in the league, but you also got to look at the Kevin Durant, Russell Westbrook, Carmelo, LeBron, D. Wade, who of course has now since retired. Those are the guys that were the next wave of NBA players that certainly carried the mantle or shall we say, carried the torch despite the fact that Kobe Bryant, even in the time when those guys were in the league, Kobe was still in his heyday. And I love what some of the teams did yesterday in their games. San Antonio and Toronto, they let the play clock on their opening possessions. 24 seconds, of course, for Kobe's number. They just let it expire. Same thing with the Brooklyn Nets and New York Knicks. Mike Breen, of course, was very emotional. Said he just didn't want to announce a game yesterday, but had to. And this one has sent shockwaves unlike anything I've ever seen. I mean, we could go through all the list of athletes that have passed well before their time. And this one resonates more than ever. And to think in September, this would have been his first year of eligibility. He would have been on that podium in Springfield, Massachusetts, with, I'm sure, a very long and well-awaited Hall of Fame speech as he is going to be enshrined in the James Naismith Basketball Hall of Fame. And unfortunately, we won't get to see that. Right now, it's too soon to even think who's going to go up there and speak for him, whether it be his wife, Vanessa Bryan, and obviously, thoughts, prayers, condolences go out to her, her children, family, the families involved in the crash, the Altabellis, everybody who was on board. Obviously, everybody in the NBA community who knew a one Kobe Bean Bryant. And the thing that I remember about him the most, when I think back in his career, now everybody knows I'm a Celtic fan, I am not a Laker fan. I think of 2008, when he walked off that court, after being just embarrassed, 39-point loss in a Game 6 where the Celtics won their first championship since 1986. But then two years later, that's the one I remember the most, in that Game 7, which I need to rewatch that because I'll never forget watching that game. It was just tooth and nail. It was blood, guts, sweat. That was just an old-school, not pretty, but just an old-school, drag-down, 15-round heavyweight fight. And Kobe Bryant, who did not play well in the game, I believe he shot 6-for-24 in that game, but he had 15 rebounds. And certainly, by far, was not the best player on the court. But you know what he did? He willed his team to win. And granted that the biggest shots in that game were taken by Derek Fisher and Ron Artest late in the game, but he was not to be denied. And the one thing I remember about him is just his competitiveness, 
his fire. The guy will go through a brick wall just to win a game. And as a lifelong sports fan, you could do nothing but admire that because we wish every athlete was wired like a one Kobe Bryant. Whether it's the team you root for or even a player on another team, you recognize that greatness. And we understand a lot of it comes from the hard work off the court, his brutal 666 workouts, which was six hours a day, six days a week for six months. That's why he was who he was. We all know he's an all-time great. Top 20 all-time. He's not in the top 10, but that's an argument for another day. And then the one other thing I think about, well, two other things, just to go back to his competitiveness. I mean, he was a guy that was as close to Jordan as Jordan could be. Obviously, he wasn't Mike, but I don't know if we'll ever see, let alone another Michael Jordan, who knows if we'll ever see another Kobe Bryant. A guy that's just a fierce competitor, who was relentless, do whatever it takes to win, and all he wanted to do at the end of the day was just stand there with the trophy over his head to be named NBA champion. So, right, we can look back and remember the 81-point game. We can look back at the five rings, the two finals MVPs, the two Olympic gold medals where he carried that team to victory over Spain. He did. Because LeBron, Carmelo, D-Wade, They looked around wondering, hey, who's going to pull us out of the fire? Who's going to come and save the day? And it was none other than Kobe Bryant that said, all right, guys, let me show you how it's done. And I also think of another thing with Kobe Bryant. I can't remember what All-Star game it was. It had to be 2007, 2008 maybe, where LeBron James had the ball in his hands, was toward the end of the game, it was a close game, and... I'll never forget how LeBron passed up an open shot to, I forgot who it was, but during the, and then it was a foul that ensued, but during that time between the foul and whoever shot the free throws, I remember Kobe Bryant going over to LeBron James, and you can't read lips word for word. Obviously, it's tough unless you're a professional, but you could just tell that the conversation between he and LeBron was, man, you need to take that shot. I understand you want to pass and you want to facilitate and make other players better. But sometimes you got to put it on you, man. You got to take it to the hole, take that shot. And you could just see that that's what he was pleading to. And who knows? LeBron hasn't come out with a statement just yet or a tweet or hasn't been interviewed. But I wonder if that's going to be something that LeBron may share. Now, it's a long time ago. Who knows if he will? But that's one thing I remember about Kobe. And tomorrow night is going to be must-see TV because the Lakers and Clippers play against one another. And how ironic is that? Twofold. How both LA teams will play against one another tomorrow at Staples Center. I'm checking right now to see whether that game is a Laker home game or a Clipper home game. But we know there's not going to be a dry eye in that house, whether it's a Laker crowd or a Clipper crowd. But you know a lot of the Laker fans are going to try to get in that building by hook or by crook. So the game, which is actually going to be on TNT, is a Laker home game. So we know that that is going to be must-watch to see everything, reactions, and we know what it's going to be like. I mean, it's not going to be a surprise by any stretch. I've talked about it from time to time how this NBA season has been 
I'm not going to say lackluster, but certainly has not gotten my juices flowing. Missing on a lot of these key matchups here in the first two and a half months of the season. Well, it took this unfortunate tragedy to now make me focus in on tomorrow night. And not only that, just for the rest of this NBA season. On a night where I'm sure LA, as much as they'll mourn, but they'll celebrate the loss of Kobe Bryant. And then lastly, just talking about LeBron. To think that Saturday night, he surpassed Kobe Bryant on the all-time scoring list. He's now third all-time. And of course, had tweeted and made some comments. Even Kobe had tweeted about LeBron's accomplishment. And then to think, boy, tomorrow night, that is going to be a tough watch, man. So again, my thoughts, prayers, everything goes out to the NBA world, the Bryant family, the families that were on involved, that were on board of the helicopter as well. And you know what? I guess lastly, I'll say this, and then I'll move on. Obviously, there's a bunch of other things. Not only will the Lakers rally around this for the rest of the season, you can only imagine what it's going to do. And I know it's going to be a tough game to play tomorrow night for these players, but they've had a couple of days to digest this at least. And I'm sure the Lakers would have canceled their game if they had a game yesterday, which obviously they didn't. But I know the one thing a lot of people will think about in retrospect is, could this have been avoided? And I'm sure there have been plenty of days where Kobe has taken that helicopter ride because I'm sure you've heard the stories where when he was a player, he did not like the traffic in L.A., that he actually had this access to a helicopter that would take him to the Staples Center. And I bet that there have been plenty of times, whether it be early morning or even late at night, where the fog was pretty dense. And from all the reports that the fog was an issue. And I'm sure maybe yesterday morning they probably didn't think twice. Not a precaution in the world. They felt, hey, this is just going to be just like all the other helicopter rides. And as much as it's easy to sit here and say, oh, this could have been avoided. They could have drove. Well, same thing like getting in your car. If you've gotten in your car a million times and you've driven to work or you've driven wherever it may be, but we just never know. There could always be that one time. And sadly, that one time took the life of Kobe and eight others, including his daughter, on that helicopter ride yesterday. May he rest in peace. All right, we'll get some more NBA stuff later, especially involving Zion Williamson and his debut and what he's done so far in his first week as an NBA player. All right, now to get back to the toy store and the candy store and get back to some semblance of normalcy here, there is a Super Bowl game that's going to be played this coming Sunday. As we all know, Kansas City Chiefs, San Francisco 49ers, I believe both teams already have descended down to South Florida. Media Day, which I believe has now been pushed to Monday, so it could be later tonight. If not, it's tomorrow. It's usually been Tuesday. And they're holding it in Marlins Park. Where I'm sure there's going to be so much of the storylines, the angles, everything that we talked about even last week, whether it's Andy Reid finally getting that elusive Super Bowl. Obviously, Patrick Mahomes is going to be the story here. We know the Niner defense. Kyle Shanahan, his dad. Kyle Shanahan being the offensive coordinator three years ago to the biggest collapse in Super Bowl history. All those things, are, I'm sure they're going to not only resurface, but re- be regurgitated over the course of the next few days. But as far as the game is concerned, it's one I'm looking forward to. I thought a lot about it early last week and haven't really thought about it much since because when I look at this game, we understand the high-powered offense of the Chiefs in comparison to the stout front seven of that Niner defense which a lot of people are going to look at as the key to the game. And even to the flip side being the 
run game of the Niners to the Chief defense, as we all know, is not a great defense. We understand they played better over the latter part of the year, but still nobody's going to confuse them with the 2000 Ravens. And with the game being six days away, obviously a lot could happen, a lot could transpire between now and then. So I'm looking at this right now very early in the week. It's not as if this is a Friday where I could break down everything. We understand injuries could happen. Certain situations, when you think back in Super Bowl history, the Stanley Wilsons of the world, the Eugene Robinsons, not to say that that's going to happen, but and hopefully it doesn't. But to me, this game is going to be won with that nine in front seven. I've seen this time and time again where a lot of people could look at that explosive offense, whether it be the 2002 Raiders, whether it be the year before that, the 2001 Rams. Greatest show on turf, indoors, perfect track. And we saw what the Patriots did to them, despite the fact that the Rams, if they had an extra quarter, they probably would have won the game. But as we all know, the game is played in four quarters. I think with the way the Chiefs have played so far in this postseason, they cannot afford to get off to any sloppy starts, just like they did against Houston and against Tennessee. They can't. And it's not even the fact that they've turned the ball over. Yes, they turned it over in special teams in the Houston game. And yes, they've had tons of drops and they weren't able to convert on a lot of their first couple of drives in each of those games. But they cannot afford to do that against this team. And we understand it's a neutral field. Hopefully the weather's great. It'll be more like Super Bowl 44 instead of Super Bowl 41. If you remember that Super Bowl 41 game, which was Colts and Bears and in the rain, didn't make it for a perfect weather game or perfect field. Obviously, it became very sloppy, wet, etc. To me, the keys to this game, and that, that's the first one right there. If somehow, some way, forget about the pressure. If the Niner defense shows up to play their game, I can see them winning going away. Because they'll do just enough on the ground. Jimmy Garoppolo will make enough plays. And the Niners will go off as champs. So when I look at this game, that that's, starts there. We could talk about the run game of the Niners, absolutely. Totally get that. But at the same time, despite it being the war in the trenches and where most games are won and lost by, to me, their defense is going to have to pull out all the stops. Because we know that it could be 20 to nothing at halftime, let's say, or 20 to 3, San Francisco. But we know the game isn't over. Far from it. They can just turn it on like a dime. And hopefully the Chiefs don't go into that game thinking that, hey, we can afford to be down two scores or even three scores, but we can come back. Not in a game with this magnitude and certainly not against a defense like that. So to me, the keys for both teams, obviously you know where I've already gone there with San Francisco as far as what they need to do to slow down that offense, whether it's putting pressure on Mahomes, they don't have much of a running game to begin with. I understand Damian Williams is a guy that in that offense is very effective, but is he going to carry the mail for four quarters if possible? We know Pat Mahomes is probably going to throw anywhere near 35 to 40 times at least in this game, unless they get a bunch of turnovers in a short field, who knows? We know the Niner run game has to be as stout as it ever has been to keep the chief offense off the field. To me, those are the two keys right there. I mean, I don't think about a third. You can talk about whether their field position is better than the Chiefs. 
Obviously, it remains to be seen. But to me, those are the two key factors for San Francisco. As far as Kansas City, they got to avoid being sloppy to start. They certainly want to be able to click early on just to make sure that they don't avoid the early three and outs or the dropsies. And we understand everybody, the whole world's going to watch. Who knows who's going to be hyperventilating on the sidelines, especially those opening minutes. But also with the Chiefs, I think if they're going to win this game, obviously the defense is going to have to show up, but they're going to have to make Jimmy Garoppolo beat him. That's it, bottom line. And it's weird because with a game like this, we understand there's a lot of little nuances when you look at certain teams or certain matchups in the past. But to me, this one's so cut and dry, it makes it easy just to preview this game. And I get that a lot of people could say, but Jay Reels, tell us something that we don't know. Well, yeah, you want to talk about little matchups. You want to say Tyreek Hill, how they're going to cover him, whether it's going to be Richard Sherman, Emmanuel Mosley, are they going to play more zone? Yeah, we could talk about that. But to me, that goes back to what I said. The front seven is going to have to slow them down. Yeah, we understand that they're going to have to cover Sammy Watkins, Tyreek Hill, Travis Kelsey, Demarcus Robinson, etc. We get that. But to me, without getting pressure from up front, doesn't matter who cover. I could be out there playing corner. If there's going to be pressure, if there's going to be havoc, if there's going to be disruption, and it doesn't mean that they have to sack Patrick Mahomes 100 times in the game. They just got to get pressure. Make him uncomfortable. They do that, they're going to win the game. That's the one thing when you have these two teams that both have their strengths, the one on offense, the other on defense, it makes it fascinating from that regard because it's going to be a chess match between Robert Salah, the defensive coordinator of the Niners, and Eric Bieniemy, the offensive coordinator of the Chiefs, Andy Reid, Kyle Shanahan, the young tyke, the old master. I'm sure everybody's going to be anticipating how this matchup is going to take place, how this is going to unfold. That's why everybody watches. As far as the X factor, to me, I think it's going to be Tyreek Hill for the Chiefs. He's a guy that, as we all know, he could get a five-yard pass and he could take it from Miami Gardens all the way down to Key West. Now, we get that he has other weapons that he could certainly use in that offense, so it's not just Tyreek Hill, but who knows? Maybe by him stretching the field, you get a lot of the soft stuff underneath over the middle, and use him as a decoy. Who knows? As far as the Niners are concerned, I'm picking somebody from that defense. I'm not going to say Richard Sherman, but it could be Emmanuel Mosley. He's a guy that's long, who a lot of people may not know of as far as the casual NFL fan is concerned, but he's a guy that I'm sure Patrick Mahomes are going to look to pick on or look to exploit. And not that Mahomes should not even look on the other side of the field where Richard Sherman is going to be covering whomever, whether it be Tyreek Hill or even Sammy Watkins. But to me, the whole field should be Patrick Mahomes and the way he plays and the way he throws the ball. But I think Mosey's going to be key. Now, of course, everybody's going to say, oh, what about Nicosa, DeForest Buckner, Eric Armstead? Well, those guys, like I said, they do their job up front. There's not an X factor there. But as far as the other corner or the guy that could be exposed – He could be the guy that could certainly either make or break this game depending on how it shakes down. But I've learned my lesson in the past. I am rooting heavily and hard for the Kansas City Chiefs. Not because of Andy Reid. Not because of 50 years that they haven't been to the Super Bowl and certainly haven't won in that 
length of time going back to Super Bowl four. But I just don't want to see the Niners win. Never liked the Niners. Never been a Niner fan. Never rooted for them. But I have to say, they're the more complete team. They're the better team. And I know, we understand, any given Sunday, anything could happen, we get that. But I could just see the Niners holding that trophy at the end of the day to the tune of 28-25 and securing their sixth Super Bowl victory, which would actually be the first one since they won down in Miami in Super Bowl 29, 25 years ago. That's how long it's been between drinks for the San Francisco 49ers. The other big news in the NFL was Eli Manning's retirement. Eli, after 16 years, and we know the two Super Bowl victories, the MVPs over the Patriots, goes off into the sunset. Good for him. He didn't want to play for any other team. And you could understand in this climate of the NFL now, unless he was going to a team that was going to win now, that was going to use him as a starter and not a backup, we all know he's been a starter his whole life. There was no way he was going to play backseat to anybody, and good for him. We all know he's Mr. Giant or second in line. We figure Lawrence Taylor is number one when you look at the Mount Rushmore of football giants. You figure with Lawrence Taylor, Frank Gifford, Eli Manning, and that fourth one, that'd be interesting. Who would that fourth one be? Rosie Greer, Pat Summerall. Oh, Sam Huff. There you go. You'd have to say Sam Huff. So Eli Manning, who a lot of people are going to debate between now and the time he gets it to Canton, whether or not he's a Hall of Famer. I've said it before and I'll say it again, and this isn't to rain on his parade by any stretch, but in my eyes, he is not a first ballot Hall of Famer. Does he have the resume to get in the Hall of Fame? Absolutely. Now, of course, a lot of it has to do with the era, 57,000 yards, the X amount of touchdowns, etc. We all know about the Super Bowls and those two magical runs. You can't take those away. But also you have to add the lot of losing seasons, especially in the latter part of his career. Not having the consistency in the postseason that you'd like to see from a guy that had those two magical playoff runs. Because you take those away, his playoff resume is like an empty cupboard. So when you have those two playoff runs where he wins eight games, and then four other times he made it to the postseason where they lost. So when you add up six playoff seasons in total of 16, that's not very impressive. Now we get those two runs at 10-6, and six, beating an undefeated Patriot team and being the first team to win nine games at division and win a Super Bowl at the same time to beat the Patriots again. We get that that's something you certainly cannot overlook. But at the same time, it's also another thing to think when you look at his whole body of work, it certainly does make you wanting more. And that's why, to me, he is not a first ballot Hall of Famer. Does he get in second, third? Oh, without question. And the thing is, is that who he's going to go up against in that year? We understand Luke Kuechly just retired, but he only played seven years. Is he worthy to be on a Hall of Fame ballot? Absolutely. Will he get in on his first shot? Probably not. And then you got to look at who else is going to be coming out that year. If it's going to be, what is it, 2025? And he's on that ballot. Chances are, I'm sure there's a lot of writers out there that are going to put the check mark next to his name when it comes to him making the Hall of Fame in his first go-around. In my eyes, he's not, but he's going to get in. Can't deny that. So good luck to Eli, whatever his future endeavors may be with his family, wife, kids, etc. 
And what a wonderful career. And it just makes you think even more, especially as a Steeler fan like myself. And when you look at that 2004 quarterback class, Phillip Rivers, who's now a free agent, who knows if he's going to take the same route as Eli Manning or does he want to continue to play somewhere else to chase that elusive Super Bowl ring that he's been so coveting, considering Eli has two, Ben has been to three and won two. And then, of course, Roethlisberger with the elbow injury after week one. Him wanting to bounce back, him wanting to come back stronger and better than ever, knowing that his best days are behind him. The only thing that needs to be answered is, does he have anything left in his tank to push his team closer to winning that seventh Super Bowl victory? Obviously, we're not going to know that until he puts on that jersey and he's under center week one in about eight months from now. But it's interesting to see how now the first of the three have retired, and the second of the three could probably follow suit. And it could be one man standing left who certainly does not have much left in his tank, but is going to try to do whatever it takes to go out on top. And that's going to be fascinating to see, knowing that this 2004 quarterback class was one of the best ever. So that's what we got with the NFL. I'll move on to the NBA. I know Zion has been all the talk this week. Zion Williamson, who finally had his debut there Wednesday night where he scored 22 points against the Utah Jazz. 17 of those came in a three-minute span where he hit four three-pointers. His final numbers look good, 22-7 and three, four for four from three. And then he also had, they played again Friday night, but then yesterday, more recent against my beloved Celtics, of course, where he scored 21 points in 27 minutes, also grabbed 11 rebounds, and they annihilated the Celtics. Now, I didn't watch the game or even seen the highlights. Obviously, with everything that transpired yesterday and just trying to get all the information regarding Kobe. But Zion Williamson and his career is certainly off and running, and you just kind of wonder how they're going to monitor his, not necessarily his progress, but monitor the whole load management deal with his knee, his future, etc., Like I said before, if he's 100%, I get you want to take precaution on back-to-backs. Totally get that. And he does have a minutes restriction. Okay, fine. I know a lot of the fans didn't like that in his opening game against Utah where he didn't play in those final few minutes. But you got to let the kid play. And the NBA world, including the sports world, wants to see him. And if he's 100% healthy to play, then play the kid. I get it's easy for me to say, Because I'm just a fan and I'm on the outside, well, well, well on the outside looking in. But I'm sure I'm not the only person out there that thinks and feels the same way. And if people are going to think that after these couple of games or who knows how he performs from here on out to the end of the season. And the Pelicans right now, they're actually trying to make a playoff push there in the West. But you're going to hear rumblings of rookie of the year. Is he going to be... One of the front runners, we all know John Moran is the guy right now in the NBA as far as rookies are concerned. But you really can't look at this stage of the season and think that Zion Williamson is going to be in the mix here for Rookie of the Year. Now, they're only two and a half games. Oh, am I reading that correctly? Yeah, they're actually two and a half games behind Memphis for the final playoff spot. And I get that if they make it to the postseason, let's say it's an eight or even a seven seed for that matter, Well, they're not going to get to seven because Oklahoma City, they are now, what, six and a half games ahead of Memphis? Or five and a half, excuse me. 
So you would think it's going to be Memphis, San Antonio, Portland, Phoenix, New Orleans for that final spot. But depending on even what he does, unless he's scoring 35 a game, you know, 35 and 17, then I could see him being in the running for rookie of the year. But right now, he's just getting started. And for everything that I mentioned, minutes restrictions, not playing on back-to-backs, come on, what is he going to do? He's going to play 25 games, he's going to win rookie of the year? I mean, he's going to have to do some, forget about Jordan-esque or Kobe-esque, LeBron-esque, he's going to have to do Will Chamberlain-esque. Averaging close to 50 points a game if he's going to get that. So for everybody, that, and I get that that's fodder for sports talk. I get that that's what the hot take's going to be. Let's say come the All-Star break in a couple weeks where if Zion continues to perform at a high level, they're, oh, he should be the rookie of the year. Everybody's been waiting for him. He's the next best thing. Oh, come on. So many people are prisoners of the moments that they just look at two games or three games or think that this is going to translate into the rest of the season, and right away they just want to give him the trophy. When we all know John Moran is the guy who's the front runner to win this award come whenever, I guess late June, when they have that award ceremony in Vegas. But as far as the rest of the league is concerned, in the East, the Bucks still flying high. Toronto has certainly made a push here. They've won seven in a row, and it's good for them because they got Pascal Siakam back, who, as we all know, is a key contributor to that team. He had been injured most of the season, so now he's back on the team and back in the flow. So the Raptors are certainly looking to see if they could recapture some of that magic, minus Kawhi Leonard, of course. Then you you know follow that by Miami, Boston, Indy, Philly, who won the game there the other night against the Lakers there, in which LeBron, as I mentioned earlier, eclipsed Kobe for third all-time in scoring. Orlando, Brooklyn, and then after that, it looks like unless Chicago, Detroit, or Washington has a run in them, you pretty much look like you're going to have your top eight seeds in the NBA as far as the Eastern Conference is concerned. And out West, Lakers trying to distance themselves where Utah has played very well. And I miscalculated Utah. I thought they had a good team. And I thought they were going to be a good team. Here they are at 32-13. and 13, And I picked them as an under this year. Only because the West I thought was going to, still going to be loaded despite the fact that Teams like San Antonio and OKC weren't going to be what they once were. And even to the extent where Denver, Houston, Dallas, the Clippers, they were just going to be a knockdown, drag-out fight between who's going to get seeds between two and six or whatever it may be. And I always and I thought that Utah would win somewhere around 50, but I didn't think they were going to get off to this much of a flying start. And look at them, 32-13, and 13, followed by the Clippers, Denver, Dallas, Houston, OKC, and then Memphis. But unlike the East, Memphis is just a game and a half ahead of San Antonio, two and a half ahead of Portland, three for Phoenix, and then four and a half. I guess my eyes are deceiving me. I think I said three and a half before, two and a half, but look at that. Jay Reels needs to get some glasses, people. But anyway, four and a half if New Orleans is thinking about making a run, and then Sacramento, and if you want to throw in Minnesota, and you can forget about Golden State. So that's your latest day in the NBA. As far as the NHL is concerned, you just had the All-Star Weekend in St. Louis where the Pacific won the All-Star Game. And of course, they've done a different format over the last couple of years where they have the three periods where the Atlantic plays the Metropolitan in the East and then the Pacific plays the Central in the second period. And in the third period, the winners of those two matchups will face each other, and then that's your All-Star game. All right, it's a little gimmicky. 
I didn't watch a second of it. I didn't even know. I couldn't even tell you who the MVP was. Just to goes to show you. And obviously, I couldn't even tell you who won the Pro Bowl and who the MVP was there. Because, again, that is just a waste of three hours, if you ask me. But as far as the NHL All-Star game is concerned, the Pacific there wins 5-4. to four, So they have the bragging rights as far as their division is concerned when it comes to the All-Star game. But pretty much what overshadowed all that was the concert with Green Day. As I didn't know if it was before the game, after the game, in between periods, who knows. But the front man of Green Day was spewing F-bombs throughout the course of the performance and it was picked up. We understand they have the seven-second delay where they could bleep out or you get that block of silence, as I'm sure you saw last night with the Grammys. But you didn't get that all the time, so you heard a lot of, I'm sure, four-letter or seven-letter words that start with the letter F to the chagrin of a one Gary Bettman where I'm sure the stuffed mushrooms and the Sauvignon Blanc didn't go down too smoothly. But that's what he gets, bringing in a group that, obviously, they're a well-known Rock band, a group that uh, certainly isn't going to be confused with uh, the Taylor Swifts of the world, but at the same time, in the immortal words, you get what you deserve, and the NHL, which in this particular instance thought they were doing the right thing, and hey, maybe to a certain extent, but that wasn't going to stop Green Day from doing what they do and how they perform, so that's the one thing that gets the storyline of the weekend is having Green Day outlast the All-Star game, and when you have that take place, That's certainly not a good thing. And with this All-Star break, it's interesting because as far as the locals are concerned, Rangers and Islanders, they don't start their season until Saturday. So you have a lot of these teams that aren't playing. Now you have games tonight. In fact, you have six games on the slate. But it's interesting how they separated a lot of these teams from actually playing until the weekend. Like tomorrow you have two games. Like the Devils are back in on the schedule this week, or they're starting tonight. And then they have just a couple games tomorrow, three games on Thursday, and pretty much then starting Friday, you have the full slate. The Rangers, their first game is Friday. Islanders, their first game from the break is Saturday against Vancouver at home. So it's just weird to see how some of these teams coming out of the break aren't starting, let's say, Tuesday or Wednesday. I could see that if they want to even give them today off. But this kind of strange how the NHL schedule is. And we'll certainly take a better stab at the NHL come next week when we break down everything. In fact, as of right now, we could talk about since the since the All-Star break has come and gone, right now we could look at these standings with the wild card in the mix, where in the Atlantic, it's of course, with the divisions, it's the top three teams, Boston, Tampa, and Florida, where the Bruins are at 70 points, Tampa Bay at 62, Florida 61. In the Metropolitan, leading off is the Washington Capitals at 71 points, followed by Pittsburgh, 67, and the Islanders, 63. And your wild card right now is Carolina, with 61 points, and ahead of them is the Columbus Blue Jackets at 62. And then from there, you have Philly at 60, Toronto, 57, and then you can forget about everything else after that. Buffalo, Montreal, the Rangers, which are down in the low 50s, and unless they have an incredible run in the second half of the season upcoming it looks like they're going to be on the short end of a postseason berth. And then out west, the Blues, who have held the top spot in the Central pretty much since day one, 68 points, Colorado 62, Dallas 58. In the Pacific, Vancouver 58, followed by Edmonton and Calgary 57. But then here's the thing. The top two wild cards are Arizona and Vegas at 57 points. So just to think, the five teams out in the Pacific are separated by one point. 
And as I've said last week and even weeks before, this is going to be a fight to the finish as to who's going to not only get the top three spots into the Pacific, but also those wild card spots. And even if the season were to end today, they'd still be in the postseason. Okay, fine. But when you have Chicago at 54 and Winnipeg at 54 points, and if you want to throw in Minnesota, 52 and Nashville, 51, who knows if they ever run in them, that's where they could upset the apple apple cart in the Pacific. And either Vegas, Arizona, Edmonton, Calgary, even Vancouver could be on the outside looking in. So that's certainly a race to look for there out west as uh, things will start to heat up on the ice starting tonight where the Capitals are involved. Other key matchups, let's see. Maple Leafs and Predators. Eh. Not a crazy slate. Wednesday, usually they have the rivalry game. NBCSN, Predators and Capitals, and Lightning Kings. Definitely not sexy. Although I do see Flames and Oilers in Edmonton on Wednesday. And we all know what happened there a few weeks ago with Matt Kachuk and Zach Cassian. So I'm sure that rivalry may come to a boil there on Wednesday night. So that's something to look for. And uh, maybe it's even something that we could discuss next week on the podcast. So we'll certainly keep our eyes on that. So that pretty much, let's see if anything else with the NHL. It was pretty much a quiet week. A lot of the teams ended their games last week, including Islanders beating the Rangers, which was big for them going into the break. That was Tuesday. And pretty much from then on out, the rest of the week was just dedicated to the All-Star break. And obviously they'll pick things up on the ice starting this evening. All right, before I get to baseball, let me turn my attention to a couple other things. The Australian Open, as far as the men's are concerned, it's pretty much been chalk. Although, let me look at Rafael Nadal, who was in his match on my way to work here. And Nadal, as we all know, is a guy that's looking for his 19th Grand Slam and actually beat Nick Kyrgios in four sets, so he moves on. The men's has pretty much been chalk. Federer, Djokovic, now Nadal, he's set. As far as the women's are concerned, Coco Goff, who was becoming the darling of tennis yet again. We all know what she did last year, whether it was in Wimbledon or even the U.S. Open. And here, after beating Venus Williams and also Naomi Osaka in the third round, a lot of people thought that maybe this could be it for Coco Goff. Now, we get that Caroline Wozniacki was out, as well as Serena Williams. So maybe this could have been the perfect storm for Coco Goff and not only that, for USA Tennis to be put on the map here. Because as we all know, here stateside, There hasn't been one tennis player within years that certainly has risen above anyone else other than the Williams sisters that you could actually wrap your arms around, something that you could sink your teeth into, whether it's on the men's or the women's scene. And to think that Coco Goff out of Florida at 15 years old was that one person that you could look at, the one player that you could look at and say, this is the one I want to root for. This is something that American tennis could hang their hat on And we could certainly monitor, not only for this tournament, but also for tournaments and years to come. But unfortunately, her run was stopped as she lost to Sophia Kennan, or Kenin, or Kenna, or however you want to pronounce it, in three sets. The future is still bright for this girl. She's 15. She's just getting started. And also, on the sports map, we get that tennis is very low, especially in this country. Maybe if you had a few interesting personalities, some not only top-notch players, but also, like I said, someone that you could certainly wrap your arms around, someone you could root for, and right now, this is the girl. Now, is it a lot of pressure for her to carry, considering that there's nobody else 
in men's or women's tennis here in the U.S. that you could certainly root for and hope to become champion year in, year out, just like the consistency you've seen from especially Serena Williams? Uh, It's a lot to put on the girl, but at the same time, it's sad that this is what it's come to. And when the next tournament, which is not going to be for a few months, not going to be until the middle of May for the French, and then we get from there, we got Wimbledon and U.S. Open, but we still have plenty of time between now and then. And a lot of these small matches or small tournaments, we could certainly look and root, but there's nothing like the majors. Nothing. And we just hope that you'll learn from this and maybe at the French and even at Wimbledon, she could go a little bit further, make it to a quarterfinal, a semifinal, or dare we even say a championship round where she could somehow, some way bring some hardware home, which would be not only stunning, but certainly I would think would captivate this country considering how precocious, how young she is, and how much success she's gotten to this point. But we all know you could get to the quarterfinals, you can get to a ton of semis, there's nothing like winning championships. And to win consistently. We've seen it time and time again with many players on the men's and women's side in this country that they're too long to list. So my hat's off to her. Still a lot of work for her to be done, but let's hope and pray that she could continue to just grow and learn and be that top-notch player that this country is looking to root for. As far as the college basketball is concerned, I know last week you had that crazy brawl between Kansas State and Kansas where the player on Kansas State was wrong. I get that the game is still being played. I get that it's, whatever, 10 seconds left in the game, and he's being competitive, and understandably so. But when you're down 81-59, and we get that this is how basketball is in this day and age, that you call the dogs off. You're not going to play competitive. What is stealing the ball and getting one last basket? You know, 81-59 to 81-61, is it that big of a deal? Now, I didn't hear any of the post-game or got to see any of the press clippings, whether this kid was saying, hey, I'm just competitive, or hey, I understand we're not going to win, but I'm going to play to the final horn. All right, great. That's good. But there is a certain protocol. There is a certain decorum or code, if you will, that if you're going to go ahead and try to pick somebody's pocket there with 10 seconds to go and you're down by 22 points, that's like scoring a touchdown and you're losing by 50 points and you're celebrating in the end zone, spiking the ball and doing all that. It's the same deal. So that's something you don't do. But then on top of that, what Silvio D'Souza did was inexplicable either. You cannot condone what he did. Now, granted, if the kid was going to pickpocket him, you could have looked at him and said, ah, let him lay it up. No big deal. Maybe you could just laugh at him and just point to the scoreboard. I get that. But his competitive juices started to flow, and he swatted that right off the backboard. But did you have to stand over the kid and incite a riot? You certainly didn't have to do that to the point where now he's suspended indefinitely. I don't know how good this prospect was. We all know Kansas is a college basketball factory when it comes to players, one of the top programs in the country. So we don't know if this is a guy that was going to be a projected lottery pick or a guy that certainly could take his game to the next level. I haven't seen enough of Kansas to determine that. But certainly a bad job on the K-State players' part and as well as Silvio D'Souza. That was something that he just sort of let it go. And now who knows what this does to their season. Now Kansas right now is ranked third in the country. So I don't know what the latest rankings are. That was what I saw as of last night. But when you look at the top 10 overall, Baylor and Gonzaga have the one and two spots. After Kansas is San Diego State University, 
And it's interesting, you have a bunch of teams here that you would never think. You know, when you look at the top 10s, and if you're just the casual college basketball fan, you're like, where's Kentucky? Where's North Carolina? You know, where's some of these teams? You know, you have Dayton there. Even Seton Hall, Villanova, when you think of the Big East, especially Seton Hall. Now, we understand they had a good team even going into last year with a bunch of seniors, but to think that now they've cracked the top 10, very impressive and just a fantastic job of what they've done so far this year. So after San Diego State, it's FSU, Louisville, Dayton, Duke, Villanova, Seton Hall, Auburn. But as we all know, next week this time, that could certainly flip-flop and a bunch of teams will probably move up in the rankings and some will go down. But now as we get closer to February and that much more closer to March Madness, we'll certainly pay a lot more attention to the college game. Although it's tough to, it's really tough to get into. And for reasons that I've explained on this podcast many times, and I'll just save it for the future podcast, I get the die-in-the-wool college basketball fans saying, come on, J. Reels, you know, give us a little shine. Well, it's hard when it's a three-week sport. It really is. And when you have players that leave after one year, it's certainly tough to want to dissect every little detail, every game, the conference, et cetera, et cetera. We all know certain players, and we all know who are the teams to look out for But once you get to conference championship week, when you really start to pay attention to who's out there, what teams are on the bubble, up and coming, et cetera, and then when you get to the tournament, then you could just pretty much determine what it is as far as who are the teams that you're going to look out for, sleepers, upset specials, et cetera. Right now, you're not thinking that. At least I'm not. And lastly, with the baseball, you had a couple of things here. I'll start with the Met manager, Luis Rojas. Now, here's a guy that's been a quality control coach on this team and been a part of this organization for 14 years. Was it a no-brainer? Well, when you had Hensley Mullins on the team, as far as the bench coach is concerned, and he was under the tutelage of a one Bruce Bochy who only won three World Series, you could pretty much either take him or Luis Rojas. We get that there's been a ton of glaring reviews, whether it's Jeff McNeil, Jacob DeGrom, they're already ready. Pete Alonso, they're raring to go and play for this guy. And we understand that when you have a guy that has the continuity and the work ethic and the relationship that he's forged with this team and this organization, obviously it could go a long way when it comes to the success of this team. But as we all know, in this day and age, everything about a manager is more about being a babysitter, a best friend, a coddler, even a psychiatrist to a certain extent. You know, it's not about strategy, X's and O's. We understand X's and O's are more of a football terminology, but you get where I'm coming from. And also, more importantly, not only that, but also managing bullpens, pitching staffs, things of that nature. It's almost as if that gets thrown out the window and everything has to be about metrics, the analytics, and also making sure that the players are 100% ready physically, mentally, emotionally, psychologically, etc. And I get that dealing with a ton of personalities, whether it's a Yonan Cespedes or even a Jacob deGrom, who's very low-key, but we all know is high in stature as far as his place in the team and his place in baseball, for that matter. But we want to know what's going to happen, and we're going to find that out. We want to know what's going to happen in the sixth inning of a game where Noah Syndergaard has pitched well, but the Mets' offense has been sputtering and they're down 3-1 and you want to pinch hit in that spot but we know 
his pitch count is low and Syndergaard's pitch well, what are you going to do? Are you going to put in that pinch hitter with the bases loaded, two out, to take him out and then go to your bullpen, which we got to wait and see if it's been a disaster a month, two months into the season? Or does he stick to his guns and say, no, I believe in Syndergaard. Let's see if he gets a hit here and hopefully we can get lucky. That's where we're going to find out whether he's a good manager or not. I like the hire. Why not? I knew it was going to be in-house. I understand last week I said give a two-year deal to Buck or Mike Socia to see what happens. Only two years. It's going to fly by before you know it. But like I said last week, this was an important hire for Brody Van Wagenen. We understand you want continuity. We get that you want to have a guy that hopefully can lead this team for at least 10 years. And with the new owner on the horizon and Steve Cohen, Brody knew that he had to get his guy. Because if not, he may be getting his walking papers next week. So that's what we got there with the Luis Rojas situation. Nothing going on in Houston and in Boston as far as their managerial positions are concerned. So we'll certainly wait on that as spring training and camps open up in two weeks, people. Two and a half for some. So we'll see how that unfolds. You also have the deal with the Hall of Fame. Derek Jeter, the Yankee fans need to pipe down. I understand that there was one voter out there that should remain nameless and should not get any attention whatsoever. Whether he's come out or not, I don't think he has to this point. But 99.7 is better than anybody else who's walked in not named Mariano Rivera. So when you look at it from a grand scheme of things, Yankee fans, Joe DiMaggio didn't get 100% of the vote. Mickey Mantle didn't get 100% of the vote. Lou Gehrig didn't get 100%. I mean, people, come on. I get that there's going to be some animosity. I get you're going to be, ah, oh, come on, who's the one guy that left him off? He's in the Hall of Fame. That's it. We knew he was a lock first ballot, no doubt about it. Larry Walker, on the other hand, eh. And Walker was a good player. Very good player. Hall of Famer? Not in my eyes. But as far as the Yankee fan just railing against that one rider, who cares? When you look at Willie Mays, Ted Williams, we could go down the list over the all time. Hank Aaron, they never got 100%. And those guys are ranked top 10 of all time that I mentioned. So if Jeter is one vote shy, look at that and say, wow, he got more than Ted Williams, Joe DiMaggio, Hank Aaron, Roberto Clemente, Willie Mays, you name it. But the fascinating thing is going to be what's going to happen next year when you have Roger Clemens and Barry Bonds in their final year on the ballot. Well, I believe it's the year after next, so I may have jumped ahead of that. But when you have Clemens, who got 61% of the vote, and Barry Bonds got 609 and we all know they need to get 75%, what is going to happen over the course of the next two years? Now, next year, there isn't anybody of name, of ilk, that's going to come out and Garner a lock Hall of Fame 75% at least. And even Kurt Schilling for that matter who got 70% but it's not his last year on the ballot. So does this mean that these guys not only get closer but do they actually jump the 75% threshold and get into the Hall of Fame? And we all know if that's the case then all the steroid guys are going to get in eventually. Whether your name is Manny Ramirez, Mark McGuire, Sammy Sosa at some point down the road. So if there's one thing that you're going to view this from 30,000 feet and kind of see, oh, who's going to be next? How's this going to shake down? Well, we'll see what Clemens and Bonds come next year and in 2022 where A-Rod and David Ortiz are going to be on the ballot. And of course, that's a discussion for another day. 
And then you have the apocalypse is coming where the robot umps, believe it or not, are going to call pitches during spring training games this year. So let's see how that experiment works. We understand that this day and time may come with all the controversy surrounding the balls and strikes. Well, it's going to be the Jetsons 2085 where we're going to be long gone from this planet. But they're going to start experimenting with this, so we'll see how that uh, works out. And we had the Nolan Arenado feeling betrayed by ownership, not building a better team, but then he retracted on some of those comments saying that it was out of character for whatever that's worth or whatever that means. But that situation is certainly going to be watched where he has two years left before an opt-out and obviously owed $234 million over the course of the next seven years. Mets have been part of these talks. Who knows if that's going to happen. I sincerely doubt it considering that the Mets, you know, they go shopping at Kmart. And not only that, but they'll have to part with some of their key players. So that's what we have there as far as the baseball is concerned. All right, now to get to my hero and zero of the week. My hero of the week, I'm giving it to a guy by the name of Jack Jablonski. If you're wondering who Jack Jablonski is, like, who is this guy? Well, he tweeted Thursday that he has a job as a content coordinator with the Los Angeles Kings. So I guess it's a two-part deal because the Kings are also involved. So give it up to them. This was a kid who suffered a severe injury to a spinal cord on a game eight years ago, being hit from behind, sent headfirst into the boards, and obviously wanted to be a hockey player his whole life. But he recently graduated from USC with a major in communications. He interned with the Kings for quite some time before he was just recently hired full-time to be working with their content coordinator, working in podcasting, radio, and TV. And to think that when you have a dream of playing any sport, and in particular hockey, and we've seen this time and time again, unfortunately, with certain players where they go headfirst into the boards, they're paralyzed from the waist down or even from the neck down. And to think that he's going to fulfill a dream of another sort, becoming a part of their content coordinating sector of their organization, that's a big up to the Kings and to Jack Jablonski. So that's my hero of the week. And we'll keep it in LA because my zero of the week goes to the city council for approving a resolution urging Major League Baseball to strip World Series titles from the Astros and Red Sox. Now, All I got to say to that is we know, and the Dodgers have come out and said, "Ah, we don't want those fake banners. We don't want to be a part of a championship that wasn't ours. And good for them for saying that. But for the LA City Council to get involved in that, that's just an absolute joke. So enough said. That is my zero of the week. And that will conclude this podcast for today. People, I'm forever grateful and thankful for you taking a chance to listen to what it is I have to say about the world of sports. I greatly appreciate all of your time, energy, effort to listen to what it is that I have to say. And if I may ask you just a small little favor, if you could go ahead and subscribe, leave a rating, post a review on any of the podcasting platforms that you use, whether it's Apple, Google, Spreaker, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Luminary, etc. All that's going to do is just increase the visibility of this podcast with the many others that are out there and hopefully generate interest to bring more guests, whether it's former athletes, current athletes, writers, bloggers, broadcasters, etc. Also... Feel free to follow me on any of my social media accounts, whether it's J Reels on Instagram, J Reels One, just a number on Twitter, the J Reels Podcast on my Facebook fan page, and the J Reels Podcast at gmail.com. If you want to send me any questions, comments, criticism, praise on my DMs, please feel free to do so, people. And also to contribute to the podcast, you could do that, whether it's production, advertising, marketing, etc. That's on my Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash the J Reels Podcast. Again, forever grateful and thankful for everything that you've done to support this podcast, people. Please share the word. 
spread it through social media, word of mouth, whatever it may be, as I continue to deliver each and every week. Thank God I've been blessed to have this mic in front of me to deliver everything that's going on in the world of the diamond, the world of the ice, the world of the gridiron, the world of the hardwood, the golf course, racetrack, tennis court, you name it. From my lips to your ears, from my heart to your soul, from where I am to wherever you are, the J Reels podcast always comes correct, direct, and in full effect. From the South Bronx to South Beach to South Central to South Pacific and all points beyond, peace, love, and God bless everybody. And until next time on the J Reels podcast, on the flip, baby. <laughs>